You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl to learn more. For in all battles, it is the eye which is first vanquished. You stand on the battlefield with the mist rising up at your feet, and you stare down the shield wall of the enemy. They're banging their weapons against the heavy wood of their shields now, daring you to come. You tighten your grip on your battle axe, heavy enough to slice through gristle and bone. You'll give them what they ask for. Oh, yes. Already the god is starting to move in you. You started to feel it last night at the ceremony, amidst the chanting and the magic smoke, the priestess's incantations. The god was there and alive, and he reached into your chest and gripped your bloody beating heart, said you are mine. All the blood you spill is for me. Not that you need the gods' encouragement. It's been this way ever since your brother died. Younger than you, blonde and beautiful, everyone loved him, which is rare for your kind. He went singing into battle and your king sent him first against the shield wall, threw him away like trash. Your king thinks all of you are garbage, disposable. So does the army at your back. You've seen it. The way they watch you and your companions in the mead hall drinking and dicing, one eye on the serving girls, the other eye on you, as if waiting for you to break. You grip the haft of your axe tightly. Around you, your companions are chanting your battle cry, the one only your kind are allowed to sing. Your king and his army are yards behind you, letting you be the ones to lead the charge against the shield wall. It's a fucking joke. Twelve men, you and your companions, against a hundred. The king will follow when you've broken the wall, when it's safe for them. And you will break the wall. You hate the king, you hate the army, but you don't fight for them. You fight for the god. Already the red mist of battle is rising before your sight. Soon you will no longer be yourself. Ahead of you, in the glinting mist, you can see him. Your brother, his helm gleaming in the dim, gloaming light, glancing behind him with that merry smile as if going off to a dance. You coming? he asks, 
and you raise your weapon and roar. A beast's roar, a bear's roar, rising in your throat. All around you, your companions echo. They've seen their own ghosts. The god has his fist around all of your hearts. You're coming, and soon this soil will be soaked in blood. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. You're going to take me down some dark military history path that may be a little supernatural, and you know I'm here for it. That is the plan, in fact. This is an episode about the shock troops of Viking armies, the most violent, the most terrifying, the men who ran out ahead of the army to shatter shield walls and break the minds and spirits of the enemy. There are accounts of great selfless acts of heroism and self-sacrifice among them in the ancient histories, but they were also on the margins of society, mistrusted and despised even by their own side. Why is that? And what drugs were these guys on exactly? That's the question I want answered. Maybe they were just high on life. I mean, maybe. (laughs) What is truth and what is fiction? What can we uncover about these men and every once in a while a woman who are said to be so terrifyingly transformed? Today's subject is that most terrifying enigma of the ancient world, berserkers on the battlefield. So, Jen, what does the word berserk mean to you? What comes to mind? Furiously violent, rage-filled, kind of like a a violence without a real direction or meaning or understanding. That sounds about right, really. So, as Jen said, berserk is a word that has come to mean furiously violent, out of control, a complete loss of temper, just absolutely going angrily haywire in the worst possible way. Going berserk in modern times is not a good look. But in ancient times, in some places, particularly on the battlefield, well, let's just say it wasn't a good look then either, but it served a certain purpose. Berserkers were closely associated with a god or godlike powers that protected them, that made them invulnerable to iron weapons and fire, that dulled the blades of their enemies. You may recognize them as howling, battle-mad human tanks who went absolutely balls to the walls in a fight. And that's basically accurate. Get those balls out if there's a wall. That's true, okay? Like, having your balls out was part of this. (laughs) In a very real and literal way. I just, like, I can't. (laughs) Oh, yes, you can. (laughs) You love a balls to the walls. That's all I'm going to say. I mean, these are a whole lot of guys who weren't wearing underwear. Of course they weren't. Put your knickers on, boys. Jen's Gisa, <laughs> she won't talk to you if you're not wearing underwear. I hate to tell her what Cullen and Julius Caesar have been wearing this whole time. Oh, please don't. <laughs> Moving on. Berserkers were a type of specialized shock troop, strongly associated with Vikings. There is a lot of textual and artistic evidence for their existence, but they have also been heavily mythologized. And the truth is hard to separate from fiction. And while they're generally believed to be a Viking phenomenon, there's evidence that the berserker tradition was once far more widespread and older than the Viking culture by maybe thousands of years. So, you know I like old shit, Jen. The berserkers were in fact older than the Vikings. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. (laughs) The word berserker comes from an old Norse word, bear sark, that means something like bear shirt, meaning a bearskin shirt or garment. Snorri, the author of the Prose Edda, who lived from 1179 to 1241 AD, translated it as bare shirt, meaning butt naked, balls out. 
That's all. The wordplay of bear and bear apparently translates across Old Norse. That's what I've read. Yeah, it sounds like they were having a little bit of fun. Language is a good time. Now, there are three categories of these bare naked men who appear in the Norse sources. There are bear men, wolf men, and this one is a little rarer, but boar men. Hi, boys. Are you going to be a bear, a wolf, or a boar tonight? Hmm. <laughs> that was really porny. I appreciate that. Boar man. <laughs> Listen, it's a why choose, and I will not choose. Who's been reading a lot of smut? Swoon. And they're all about pleasing just, just one little old me. Hmm. Why should you have to choose? You shouldn't have to. You can have your boar and your bear and your wolf all at the same time. <laughs> The berserker was said to go into battle either naked or wearing nothing but the skin of an animal, usually a wolf or bear. Or a boar. You know, can you imagine the head of a boar with the tusks and the weird bristly hide? Ugh. Anyway. Jen likes the boar man. That's her berserker flavor. No, my my flavor is definitely the wolf, although I have a soft spot for that bear. As long as they're focused on pleasing me, I'm not going to discriminate via animal. Why choose? Now... Allegedly, berserkers could not be injured, not by iron and not by fire, and not by me hurting their feelings. Impervious to mockery. (laughs) They're not in boozes. Now, the ones more closely associated with wolves are sometimes referred to as wolfskins in the Viking sagas. And in many accounts, they literally transformed into wolves. Some believe that berserker myths gave rise to werewolf mythology. There is one such berserker in one of the sagas who was able to transform into a wolf, who was described as follows, quote, Every day as evening drew on, he became sullen so that few could come to speak with him. He was an evening sleeper. and It was commonly said that he was very shape-strong. He was called Evening Wolf. Evening Wolf. What a sexy name. Evening Wolf. Shape-strong. I just thought that was so evocative, so I wanted to include it. So, berserkers were associated with the god Odin, Odin was the patriarch of Viking mythology, and he was the god of a lot of things, including poetry and wisdom, but he was also the god of war, death, and frenzy. His name is said to descend from the Proto-Germanic, I cannot pronounce this word, but let's just say Woden, which meant lord of frenzy or leader of the possessed, which makes a lot of sense because berserkers were, above all things, said to be possessed by a kind of battle frenzy. I just have to jump in here and say something. If I'm going to be possessed by anything, I don't think I want it to be a battle frenzy. Every time we we have this podcast, I just keep thinking about our Lord and Savior Dionysus. Like, if I must be possessed, I'd rather be a Bacchic frenzy. That's all. It's not that different, really. What with the tearing animals limb from limb and possibly your male relatives? Uh Uh-huh, but I don't have to do it on a battlefield, and I always come out the winner, and I don't have to break a shield wall, and also I get to be drunk. You could be drunk on the battlefield or high as well. I mean, there's definitely evidence for that or, you know, at least tangential evidence for that. It's a theory, but I prefer Dionysus's frenzy. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I would posit that there actually isn't much daylight between the two if you really think about it. Hard pass. Dionysus is not asking me to fight in wars for him. Well, he did actually have the Amazons fighting for him and he had his own war elephants. See what I mean? War elephants were literally in his entourage, Jen. I mean... They were. 
I've fallen once again down my love of Dionysus rabbit hole. Can you all tell I'm writing a book about Dionysus? Probably. I mean, there really isn't much daylight between the two, and you have claimed many times to be a war elephant, in which case that is a form of berserker if you really want to get down to it. Anyway, so... One of the most comprehensive descriptions of berserkers is described in the, I'm so sorry, there are going to be Icelandic words that come up that I will not be able to pronounce, Yinglinga Saga, potentially, I'm sure I butchered that, apologies, written by Snorri Sturluson. Snorri lived between 1179 and 1241 AD, as I said before. He was an Icelandic poet, lawyer, historian, and statesman who wrote a lot of works that define how we think of Viking culture and mythology today, including the Prose Edda. Here's how he describes Odin, patron god of berserkers, and also a berserker himself. Quote, (laughs) I love when Jenny says quote. Can we just like make it a thing where you just say quote and then I read? If it makes you happy, Jen, sure. Quote! When sitting among his friends, his countenance was so beautiful and dignified that the spirits of all were exhilarated by it. But when he was in war, he appeared dreadful to his foes. This arose from his being able to change his skin and form in any way he liked. Odin could make his enemies in battle blind or terror-struck, and their weapons so blunt that they could no more but than a willow wand. On the other hand, his men rushed forwards without armor. They were as mad as dogs or wolves, bit their shields, and were strong as bears or wild bulls, and killed people at a blow but neither fire nor iron told upon themselves. These were called berserker. Biting the shield was a thing that crops up a lot in stories of Viking berserkers. In fact, there's a visual example of this in the Lewis Chessmen, a set of chess pieces dating from the 1100s that was discovered in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. I think it was like dug up out of a riverbank or something. The pieces of this chess set are different than modern sets, and they are so full of personality. I love the Lewis Chessmen. I am a Lewis Chessman stan. I love them. Anyway, instead of castles, there are warders. These are like these little guys in armor, and one bites his shield like a Viking berserker. It's so cool. So here's another description of berserkers by Saxo Grammaticus from 1150 to 1220 AD, so roughly contemporary to Snorri. He was a Danish writer, historian, and theologian. And this is from the uh, Gesta Denorum, a history of Denmark. Quote, Seewald had seven sons, who were such clever sorcerers that often, inspired with a force of sudden frenzy, they would roar savagely, bite their shields, swallow hot coals, and go through any fire that could be piled up. And their frantic passion could only be checked by the rigor of chains or propitiated by the slaughter of men. With such a frenzy did their own sanguinary temper, or else the fury of demons, inspire them. Hot. Right? (laughs) Sexy. (laughs) The earliest mention of the word berserker occurs in a poem called The Words of the Raven. This is a fragment of a skaldic poem believed to date probably from 872 AD. The skalds, unlike bards, were poets whose purview was describing events more or less as they happened, with limited embellishment. Because of this, their poetry is generally regarded as more reliable than other sources when reconstructing ancient events. The poem features a conversation between a raven and a valkyrie. The raven and the valkyrie are actually discussing the life and warlike deeds of Harold Fairhair. 
He was the guy who united Norway as one kingdom. So the lines of this poem that are relevant go like this. You read this part. I know you have to say the word. Quote! Thank you. Have you heard of the king, he who lives in Kvin? Lord of all Norwegian lands, he who rules deep-set keels, reddened spears and bloody shields, tar-soaked oars and foam-fleck sails. Loaded were they with warriors and shields of whitened hue. Western spears I know there were, and Frankish swords all anew. Berserks howled and bit their shields. As battle dawned on the waves, wolfmen wailed and cried aloud. Wave their spears up high, glad they are now as battle nears. Arrows range high, and oars they swing. Fetters are broken, oarlocks crushed setting forth for the Lord. Of the berserker I would know more, those who feed on blood, how one deals with such battle-brave warriors, those who wade through men. Of the berserker, as battle dawned on the waves, wolfmen wailed and cried aloud, wave their spears up high, fetters are broken, oarlocks crushed, setting forth for the Lord. So this poem describes the events of the Battle of Hafersfjord. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry to the people of Norway. Anyways, this very important battle, which took place sometime between 872 and 900 AD, it was the decisive battle under which the Kingdom of Norway was finally unified under Harald Fairhair. The poem is believed to be written just afterward by his court poet or skald. So this is like basically the first time berserkers are mentioned in history and you've got everything, right? Like you've got the shield biting, you've got the wolfmen, you've got the howling. Berserkers are closely associated with this battle and they played roles on both sides. This was a sea battle. Berserkers at sea were said to be positioned always in the prow of the ship so that they would be the first to fight in hand-to-hand combat. That's also true on land. Berserkers were usually on the front lines, used as shock troops, sent to brave flying spears and arrows, and crashed through enemy shield walls, either through brute force or sheer terror, as the berserkers were terrifying both on the battlefield and off. They were often sent far ahead of the rest of the army because they tended to attack friend as well as foe, and even their own people wanted to keep well clear of them. They're like a war elephant. They're a human... Oh shit, I'm a berserker. Exactly, Jen. I mean, there's so many parallels. Like, if you listen back to our war elephants episodes, these guys are basically war elephants. Yeah, and I just realized I would have been a berserker. Damn it. You've been saying that the entire time we had this podcast. Why are you surprised? Berserkers are also maenads. Yeah, kinda. (laughs) We're all werewolves. That's all it is. We're all werewolves and vampires. Get excited. So this poem tells of how Harold had berserkers on his warships. Snorri, writing perhaps 300 years after this battle, also mentions a berserker on the other side, by name, Thor Hakland. Quote, he was a great berserk. <laughs> According to Snorri, Hakland, quote, you gotta say it, Hakland, quote, laid his ship against King Harold's, and there was above all measure a desperate attack until Thor Hakland fell and his whole ship was cleared of men. So, here you have a berserker standing as kind of a one-man wall holding back an entire crew to protect his own side. This isn't the first time a berserker will be shown doing this. (laughs) 
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well... I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. Now, before we go forward, here are some qualities of berserkers that are mentioned in the ancient sources. We summarize. We sum up. Exactly. There are some qualities of berserkers that repeat a lot in the ancient sources, including... Neither fire nor iron could hurt a berserker. They were, quote, mad as dogs or wolves, as one of the uh, poems says. Inspired by the force of sudden frenzy, they went into an altered mental state in battle, in other words. They roared and made a lot of noise, very Dionysian. They were gripped by rage. They bit their shields. That's unique to berserkers. That is pretty unique. You don't see the mayonnaise doing that. I haven't seen it in anything else. Like, I love to tease about Dionysus, but also, this is its own culture and its own thing. They were superhumanly strong. They drew their power from the divine, usually Odin in Viking mythology. And they didn't wear armor. They went into battle wearing animal skins or, you know, sometimes butt-ass naked. So, now we're going to get into some specific stories of berserkers as villains and as heroes in the ancient sources. There are other famous accounts of berserkers standing as the one man who protects the whole army from another army. And when he inevitably falls, his companions are routed. I mean, this is very Cucullin. This is very ancient hero culture. Where is Cucullin? He said he was going to do this with me. Cucullin doesn't know much about Viking berserkers, except that Cucullin could kick their asses, clothed or naked. That's probably true. It's true because you warp spasmed. Well, what is the warp spasm except for a berserker gang? Question. Warp spasm. Are you warp spasming right now? See you in a bit. Must berserk. He's going to go break things. (laughs) He'll be back. (laughs) He really is. So. Let's talk about berserkers and their immensely sacrificial behavior. There's evidence that sometimes berserkers held a high-ranking position in Viking meat halls or in ancient Irish mythology. Go Cucullin. We'll get to the ancient Irish mythology, but for now we're focusing on the Viking of it all. Exactly. 
Berserkers often appear in the ancient sagas as part of the close retinue of Norse kings, often their closest bodyguards, usually appearing in groups of 12. But berserkers also appear in the sagas as antisocial loners and villains, usually the person that a hero in the story has to defeat. It's not unusual to see berserkers depicted as horrifically ugly, kind of similar to trolls. Berserkers in the sagas were just as likely to be outlaws as heroes. There's a story here that goes into detail about rogue berserkers and how they operated. It's an Egil's saga, which is an Icelandic saga whose oldest version dates back to, I think, 1240 AD, and which covers events allegedly dating to around 850 to 1000 AD. It's generally believed that Snorri is the author, although that isn't known for sure, and it's also thought Snorri may have been a descendant of Egil, the main character, but again, that is also not known for sure. This story is a family saga. These are a type of Icelandic saga that tell the stories of events in Iceland in the 800s, 900s, and early 1000s AD, written in Old Icelandic. They mainly focus on the histories of individual families and provide us a lot of information about Norse pre-Christian life, culture, and religion. Anyway, in Egil's saga, the hero, an Icelandic Viking, skaldic poet, and farmer named Egil, is traveling around Iceland and stops at a friend's place to stay. He notices that the friend's daughter is constantly weeping, and he asks her why. What he hears is that there was a berserker from Sweden roaming around challenging people to duels. Now, in this warlike society, you could really only keep what you could defend in hand-to-hand combat. There was no law enforcement. If someone challenged you to a duel over your cow or your house or, say, your daughter, and they won, they got to keep whatever they challenged you for. This was basically a mating strategy for societally marginalized men. Really brutal men. Yeah. And you couldn't refuse a challenge like this. In this honor culture, refusing was a sign of weakness. If you refused challenges, then everyone was going to see you as weak and a target. Refusing a duel injured your honor. Honor was at stake. That's right, Cucullin. Honor was at stake. Cucullin is very comfortable in this type of society. Yes, I am. I eat other men's honor for breakfast, especially when they have none. (laughs) Thanks, Cucullin. Um, way to contribute to the scholarly background of this episode. <laughs> Usually when he comes on, he's nuanced, he's interesting. Today he's just in a playful, weird mood. I don't know. He's berserking. He's already told us he's in the warp spasm. He did. He did tell us he was warp spasming for this episode. Although I kind of, my theory on Cucullin is that he's constantly warp spasming anyway. I mean, have you seen what his eyeballs look like? Like his hair? Hello. I mean, let's not judge. <laughs> no, I'm not going to judge. Absolutely not. Anyway, so not to mention going on about the honor culture and why you couldn't just say no to a duel if some asshole rolls up to your house and challenges you to fight to the death for your daughter. Honor was at stake. Right, Cucullin. And not to mention, this wasn't just a corny tradition. This was a method of law enforcement in and of itself, a method of limiting violence, if you can believe it, with strict rules around it. The duel in question was called a home gang in Old Norse and was also used as a way to demand a debt owed, settle a legal dispute, or avenge a wrong. Anyone of any status could challenge anyone else, which meant it was one of the few recourses of justice open to lower status people against the upper classes. And if you turned a duel down, you could lose all your stuff and be sent into outlawry yourself. 
Rules varied in different times and places, but the penalty for refusal could be legal repercussions, I think, I believe, based on what I've read. So people just couldn't tell the berserker to get lost, is what I'm getting at here. No, because honor was at stake, Jenny. Right, Cucullin, thank you. You've said that quite a bit now. <laughs> Warp spasming is tough. Sometimes thoughts get lost. Honor! Honor was at stake! Deep in your voice when you say it. That's as deep as it goes. <laughs> Work on it, Williamson. Cucullin, go break some things and get back to me. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna just take over because I get to run my own ship, you two. According to the sagas, when they weren't fighting on the battlefield or serving as elite bodyguards, some berserkers actually made their living wandering around the countryside, challenging people to duels for things they needed or just wanted. They were professional duelists or duelers. And it's kind of important to note that the heroic berserkers, who stood like a wall protecting whole armies from other armies, who served as the elite bodyguard of Viking lords and kings, those were not different guys than the outlaw troll berserkers. These were the same guys, playing different roles in society, depending on how their fortune swung, or whether there was a war on at that particular time. Or maybe all the 12-man Viking bodyguard bands were full and they were just like loners who needed something to do and the only way they knew how to make a living was to berserk. Look, they were good at one thing, Jen. <laughs> yeah, berserking. So it turns out in Egil's saga, there was this particular berserker who wanted women, and he was utilizing the Viking honor code to get women. He was challenging people to duels over their female kinfolk. He inevitably won all the duels because this was his literal job, and then he'd rape the women. Fucking terrible. So anyway, when Egil asked why this girl at his friend's house was crying, the family told him that this berserker had come around and challenged her brother to a duel for her. And the brother was not a fighter, let's just say. He was young and experienced, not that strong, probably like 12. I'm 11! I'm 11, <laughs> exactly! <laughs> He's challenging, I'm 11! That's one way to win all your battles. Egil felt honor-bound to take up the challenge on the girl's behalf. Egil met the berserker in battle. Here's how the berserker, whose name was Liat, is described. Yeah, I think it's Liat. I, I could be completely wrong. I could be completely wrong on that. I just couldn't find a way to pronounce it online that I necessarily trusted. Quote, Liat was a man of vast size and strong. And as he came forward on the field to the ground of combat, a fit of berserk fury seized him. He began to bellow hideously and bit his shield. So, Egil and Liat had an epic battle, and eventually, Egil chops off Liat's leg and he bleeds out in the dirt. Turns out he wasn't so immune to weapons. After all, I don't know, what was the weapon made of? Maybe it wasn't iron. Maybe it was steel. Or silver. Pretty, pretty sure it wasn't silver. The saga says that few people mourned Liat because... Quote, he had been a turbulent bully. End quote. And that seems to be not so unusual for berserkers in Viking society when they weren't fighting wars and being the king's men. So what we're seeing here is two types of berserkers, as we've said. The ones who were the king's bodyguards and elite troops, usually shown in gangs of 12, and the ones who were social outcasts, roaming around pillaging and raping and generally being assholes. But actually, there may not really have been much difference between the two. These were basically the same guys on and off the battlefield. But even on the battlefield, 
berserkers were ostracized. Like we said before, they were sent out ahead of everybody else because nobody else on their own side trusted them. And there is a good reason for that. In battle, as we've said, berserkers had a tendency to attack friend as well as foe. Even in armies that depended on them, they weren't and couldn't be trusted. The Vikings had a code of honor. It laid a huge amount of importance on fidelity. And they didn't just mean fidelity to your spouse. To the Vikings, fidelity meant being willing to defend one's friends and family and community to the death. And if you were able to fight, to fight their battles. Like Eagle did. He was basically exemplifying the Viking concept of fidelity. Absolutely. So when berserkers turned on their own in a battle-mad rage, that deeply offended Viking sensibilities. Berserkers were seen as incapable of the fidelity expected of the Viking code of honor. In a very real way, they were outside of the community. And when not fighting as some king's elite honor guard, they were often depicted as outlaws living in the woods, terrorizing the populace, sometimes transforming into bears and other animals. So yeah, like they were seen as animalistic, you know, in that way. And even when they were in some elite honor guard, they were generally kept at arm's length. Descriptions from the sources describe them as ugly, mannerless, and violent members of a king or lord's entourage, not fun people to be around, and not guys who integrated well. It would seem that even as elite shock troops, they were apart from others, outside of society, and rejected by it. However, that doesn't mean that the berserker was never the hero of the tale. We've already touched on one berserker in a sea battle who held back an entire crew of warriors from boarding his boat until he fell and his own crew was wiped out. An even more dramatic story like this occurred during the Battle of Stamford Bridge, a battle that happened in Yorkshire in September 1066. It was part of the lead-up to the Norman Conquest. So just to give you some backstory, when the Anglo-Saxon king, Edward the Confessor, died, he died childless. It turned out that there were a lot of people who felt that they should be the one to inherit the throne. Shocker! One of those was William of Normandy, later known as William the Conqueror. Guess who won? The other was Harald Hardrada, the King of Norway. Harald invaded England in the north, in Yorkshire, leading an invasion force. After winning an initial battle and taking the city of York, his army met the forces of Harald Godwinson, the brother-in-law of Edward the Confessor, and, at the moment, the official King of England. Edward sort of chose him as his heir on his deathbed, waking up briefly from a coma to do it. But the wording was vague and a lot of people didn't accept Godwinson as official, including Harold of Norway. Anyway, so Godwinson and Hardrada, both men named Harold, met at a place called Stamford Bridge. The precise location is disputed, but there seems to have been an actual bridge involved. Apparently, Godwinson's army managed to rout Hardrada's army, and the Northmen, that would be Hardrada and his army, they were Vikings, fled over Stamford Bridge. Godwinson's army pursued, but they were halted on the bridge by one man. One man. One berserk man. One mighty Northman, a berserker who single-handedly held back the English. This event is described in two places, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and the Chronicle of Henry of Huntington. Henry of Huntington is a bit more detailed, and it says, quote, The battle was desperately fought, the armies being engaged from daybreak to noonday, when after the fierce attacks on both sides, the Norwegians were forced to give way before the superior numbers of the English, but retreated in good order. Being driven across the river, the living trampling on the corpses of the slain, they resolutely made a fresh stand. 
Here a single Norwegian, whose name ought to have been preserved, took post on a bridge, and hewing down more than forty of the English with a battle-axe, his country's weapon, stayed the advance of the whole English army till the ninth horn. This nameless berserker, fighting with what was probably an enormous Dane axe, a kind of battle-axe built like a meat-cleaver, killed over forty Anglo-Saxon warriors. According to both sources, nobody could defeat him until someone got the bright idea to go under the bridge and stab at him from below with spears. That is a good idea. Someone was using their thinking brain. Yeah, not their berserking brain. See, this is why it's good to have at least one guy in your army who's not a berserker. (laughs) Yeah, the berserker bought time for King Harald of Norway to form a shield wall, but it was to no avail. The English poured over the bridge. And King Harald of Norway and his whole army was slaughtered. So many died in such a small area that it's said that 50 years later, the place was still bleached white with the bones of the slain. Ouch. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters, with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold. So, that's a pretty comprehensive picture of berserkers in Viking culture, but there is strong evidence that the berserker phenomenon is actually older than the Vikings, by a lot. And it wasn't limited to the Vikings either. In fact, it's possible that the Viking berserker was a remnant of a much older, more ancient class of warrior that was widespread across Indo-European cultures. The ancient Romans knew about berserkers. This is way before Vikings existed, right? They had their own special word for the berserker state, Fuhrer Teutonicus, or Teutonic Fury. It's a phrase that referred to the special ferocity of the Germanic tribes in battle. It's mentioned first by the poet Lucan in 65 AD, describing the ferocious battle rage of Teutonic tribes. They've also been linked to a tribe described in Tacitus, the Hari who were believed to be disciples of Odin. He would have been Woden back then, I guess. Exactly. And they've even been linked to the Wild Hunt, although all kinds of later mythology has been attached to them. But I love me some Wild Hunt. Now, here's the quote we have from Tacitus. Jenny? Quote! Thank you. The Harai, besides being superior in strength to the tribes just enumerated, savage as they are, make the most of their natural ferocity by the help of art and opportunity. Their shields are black, their bodies dyed, they choose dark nights for battle, and, by the dread and gloomy aspect of their death-like host, strike terror into the foe, who can never confront their strange and almost infernal appearance. For in all battles, it is the eye which is first vanquished. Ooh, that's so smart, I love that. Tacitus! He's saying you first sort of win by like that psychological terror, right? By looking really scary, you're already like kind of winning the battle. 
I also noticed that as you were reading it. I was just like, ooh, he's talking about perception. He's talking about psychological warfare. He's absolutely right. So Trajan's column is an elaborately carved triumphal column in Rome that depicts the emperor Trajan's conquest of Dacia, a province in Eastern Europe, around 101 to 106 AD. That was when this war happened, and the column was completed in 113 AD. It's carved with a spiral bas-relief that depicts the wars. One of the things that appears on that column are early depictions of berserkers, or at least that's how these have been described. They stand among the Roman auxiliaries, warriors from tribes conquered by or allied to the Romans, or perhaps both. These men are Germanic warriors, barefooted, bare-chested, and wearing hoods made of bear skins and wolf skins. This is the first time bear and wolf warriors are shown fighting together until the first mention of bear men and wolf men in Viking skaldic poetry in 872 AD when they fought with Harold Fairhair. There are other pre-Christian depictions that go back hundreds of years earlier than 872 AD. The Torslanda plates are four cast bronze dyes found on an island off the southeastern coast of Sweden called Oland. Are they dyes or dice? They're dyes as in like things used to cast other things. That They've been described as dyes, not dice. Dyes to create something in blacksmithing. Thank you for clarifying that for me and the listeners because I wasn't sure. No, it, it makes sense that you'd be confused. Like it's not a typical word that I would necessarily have an association with for this but that's that's how it's been described based on things i've read now they date from roughly the 500s ad these plates were designed to be used in production basically you could place thin sheets of foil against them and hammer or press the sheets down to reproduce scenes on the plates then you'd use the foil to decorate the helmets of high status warriors and by foil you mean like a gold foil leaf right or bronze or something like that yeah like very 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 thin metal that you would press down and you would get this shape from this sort of pre-created die or you know plate and then you would put that foil on a, a helmet to decorate it yeah so these plates are remarkable as they show aspects of viking mythology and predate christianity in sweden by roughly 300 to 500 years And we don't have a lot of information about Viking mythology that isn't through a Christian lens. We talked about this actually in our interview with um, Joanne Harris. So few of the stories that we have that we associate with Viking mythology, we can trace to something pre-Christian. So all of it has this Christian lens to it. And then there are these little fragments of things that hint at a much different mythological landscape outside of Christianity that is just lost to us now. And these plates are so interesting because they are outside of that. Yeah, which is in my opinion, hot. (laughs) It is hot. You're not wrong. So each of which shows a scene in sharp relief. Now, the interpretation of these plates is disputed, but we'll describe to you briefly what they show. So the most well-known plate shows a man wearing a helmet with two birds curving upward from it like horns. The man is standing and possibly dancing with a beast-like figure. Some historians have interpreted this man as Odin, who famously had two ravens as familiars, and the beast-like figure as a berserker disciple. The second scene shows a man standing between, possibly dancing with or fighting, two bears. Some have suggested this may be a scene of a berserker initiation, and some later Viking epics describe stories of berserkers having to defeat a bear or other animal in battle to gain their powers and their skins. 
The third plate shows a man fighting a beast that has been interpreted as a wolf. This could be tied to wolf berserkers, although some scholars have suggested this is the god Tyr, binding the wolf Fenrir as happens in Norse mythology. Of course, the big moment in that myth is Fenrir refusing to be bound by the magic chain that the gods have brought to bind him, unless one of the gods places his hand in the wolf's mouth as a sign of good faith. Trust your gut, Fenrir! Yes, he was totally right. And the one who volunteers to do this is Tyr, who naturally gets his hand bitten off. So you have to wonder why that isn't also shown on the plate, the loss of the hand. Right, you have to wonder why that's not the scene in the plate, like him sticking his hand in the wolf's mouth, if that's really what's being depicted here. That's my question, because that's the big dramatic moment, right? Yeah. And the fourth shows a pair of warriors, both holding spears with their points downward, wearing boar helmets. Boar helmets, Jen, your favorite. Sexy. Hot. So these guys have been interpreted as fertility symbols and possibly tied to the god Freyr, but also to boar berserkers. So on these plates, you have possibly, uh, depending on who you ask, depictions of the three different types of berserkers, wolfmen, bearmen, and boarmen, plus their patron god, Odin. So let's talk about berserkers outside Viking tradition, because the Germanic people were kind of precursors to the Vikings, so it makes sense that this berserker tradition would be in their history, but what if it's more widespread than that? Now, of course, berserkers, or warriors like them, are not tied to Viking and Germanic tradition alone. Jenny has seen research that goes even farther afield, finding berserker warriors in lots of places you wouldn't expect, offering a tantalizing glimpse of a tradition that's older than the Romans and the Vikings by a lot. For instance, the ancient Assyrians, Jen. In 1228 BC, the Assyrian king Tukulti Ninurta, probably mispronouncing that, but that's what it looks like to me, warred with the Babylonians. Afterwards, he commissioned a poem describing his deeds, much like Harold Fairhair did, and explaining the extreme violence enacted by his troops because apparently some shit went down. Here's how Tukulti Ninurta describes this Quote, They are furious, raging, taking forms strange as Anzu, which was a kind of eagle dragon in Assyrian mythology. They charged forward furiously to the fray without armor. They had stripped off their breastplates, discarded their clothing. They tied up their hair and polished their weapons. The fierce, heroic men danced with sharpened weapons. They blasted at one another like struggling lions with eyes aflash, while the fray, particles drawn in a whirlwind, swirled around in combat. So here you have warriors gripped by battle fury, transforming into animals, charging into battle without armor. Naked as the day they were born. Absolutely but freaking naked. It's also claimed that Tukulti Ninurta's gods blinded the enemy and blunted their weapons. I think this is elsewhere in this poem, just like Odin's poetry was said to do to his enemies in the Viking sources. Ancient berserkers? Some have said, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I just love that, like, I'm going to read you some poems and then it will blind you. Like, I love it. (laughs) Battle poetry, that was a thing. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just thinking of, like, the Morrigan. She's not related to this, but just, like, the battle poetry and songs. So, as always, we come back to our good friends, the ancient Celts. 
The Celts were once a widespread culture living throughout the islands of the UK and Ireland, as well as Western and Eastern Europe, with a lot of overlap with Germanic cultures. They also, in their most ancient myths, seem to have a berserker tradition, most of which comes to us through monks who wrote things down in the 700s to 1100s AD, roughly. And there's a big example of this that we have covered extensively on the podcast. Cucullin was a berserker, right, Cucullin? Cucullin berserks. Yes. Cucullin goes into his famous warp spasm. Warp spasm. Right. Warp spasm. And that is a clear berserker-like transformation. So we all direct our attention to Cucullin at this moment. Observe. The contortions of his face, the weird eyeballs, the death grin where you can see down his gullet, the sticking up hair, and the halo of blood. Don't judge my bloody halo. I would never judge your bloody halo, Cucullin. Cucullin is a good berserker. I never killed any friends without them knowing they were going to be killed. I mean, I think that's a tad misleading is all. Um. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Cucullin is thinking about it. Maybe Cucullin did kill some friends. Just a few. Just a few. Disappointed. Cucullin is disappointed in his behavior sometimes. But boobs! Well, boobs also happened, I suppose. Boobs are a good way to break a berserker out of berserking. That's true. That does appear to be a thing. At least in Cucullin's mythology. Exactly. I'm like, I wouldn't, like, bet on that in Viking mythology, but hey. So Cucullin is associated with a connection to the god Lu, which kind of checks the box of having a godlike or divine connection with these berserkers. And the way that Cucullin distorts his face, right, the eyeballs, the death grin, all of that, you can also see this in some of the berserker lore. For instance, here's here's a description that I really love, which is a tad lengthy, but I included it because I just thought it was so weird. So Egil in Egil's saga, he famously visited King Athelstan, an English king, and did nothing but do weird things with his eyebrows until Athelstan gave him an arm ring to make him stop. I mean, that is one way to get jewelry, I guess. Quote, as Egil sat, as was before written, he drew one eyebrow down toward the cheek, the other up to the roots of the hair. He would not drink now though the horn was born to him, but alternately twitched his brows up and down. King Ethelstan sat in the upper high seat. He, too, laid his sword across his knees. When they had sat there for a time, then the king drew his sword from the sheath and took from his arm a gold ring, large and good, and placing it upon the sword point, he stood up and went across the floor and reached it over the fire to Egil. Egil drew the ring on his arm, and then his brows went back to their place. I mean, he literally just gave the guy an arm ring to get him to stop doing weird shit with his face. That's what I'm interpreting this as. Oh my god, I'm so gonna do this. I'm so gonna do this. I'm gonna get so many jewels. (laughs) You just, like, walk into a jewelry store and try it. Or just a fancy feast or out with friends. Jen, Jen, stop. Fancy feast? (laughs) Fancy feast? Not, Not the cat food, but, like, just a fancy feast. She's out at a fancy feast. A big old party with friends. Just decide, hey, I like what necklace you're wearing until you give it to me. I'm going to do weird things with my face. Do weird <laughs> stuff with my eyebrows and say nothing. We all know I'm capable of it. If anyone can pull this off, it's you. That's how I feel. <laughs> anyway, so I just included this because it's such a weird scene. It's such a weird flex, but I, I'm here for it. I know. And I'm like, I'm not even clear if Egil in the sagas is supposed to be a berserker because there's a whole story where he's not and the other guy's the berserker. But I've also seen this quoted as an example of berserkers doing weird shit with their face. It reminds me of Gukulin. 
So let's get back to some other stuff. The ancient Romans described the Celts going into battle naked, wearing nothing but torques and sometimes cloaks if they were feeling a little nippy. These naked warriors were often placed at the front lines of their armies. Polybius, writing in 225 BC, describes naked Celtic mercenaries fighting at the front lines of the Battle of Telamon. Diodorus Siculus and Livy both describe it. Livy even describes Celtic warriors so battle-mad that they made their own wounds bigger with their blades. It was said the sight of their own bright blood against their pale skin made them battle-mad. I mean, that is such a psychological flex, right? I'm going to make my wound even bigger to be like, I am so hard, you're never going to kill me. Does kind of seem self-defeating, though. Uh, Totally. So there are other non-Roman depictions of berserker-like imagery that come to us from Celtic and pre-Celtic cultures outside the Roman lens. For instance, the Hirschlanden warrior, a life-size sandstone statue of a butt-ass naked warrior from the Hallstatt culture, probably dating from around the 500s BC. It was found in a town in southern Germany near a barrow surrounded by a stone circle and a dry stone wall. Inside the barrow were 16 burials. The statue was found face down just outside the stone wall, but it was extensively weathered and believed to have stood on top of the barrow originally, probably for a long time. The Hirschlanden warrior is a naked man, as we've said, wearing a torque, a belt with a dagger in it, a pointed birch bark hat, and absolutely nothing else. He has a raging boner. You know, he doesn't have a thinking man's penis, which I respect. He does not. He's got one of those big-ass warrior peens. Big old donkey dick. (laughs) Big old elephant dong. So this is... (laughs) Trying to get through this sentence here. This is what you get. I mean, you're my resident war elephant berserker, Mayanad. Is that is that really the noise you're going with? Okay. I have no idea. <laughs> so anyway, so this is not the only ancient Celtic warrior statue that was naked with a big old erect peen. Oh no, not the horse phallus. And I have seen it theorized that the erect penis at full mast, let's be clear, represented a connection with animalistic power and possibly a battle-mad state. Look, it's religious, Jen. Okay. It's not just there for shits and giggles. No. I think those huge old dongs were like to be like, that is a that is an animalistic man with that massive dong. And a battle-mad state. Yeah. So, the ancient Greeks also have a connection to berserkers. They've got two, actually. The first is Achilles. Achilles has been connected to berserkers. He's tied to divinity through his mom, Thetis, who's a Nereid, a water goddess or sea nymph, depending on the version of the tale. And he has that killing rage when his lover, Patroclus, is killed in battle. In fact, John Shea, PhD, describes him as the archetype of berserkers. The main similarity has to do with the psychological aspects, which we'll get into in a little bit. He fits this so well because even in the way he fights and the way it's described, he is in an altered state from who he is when he's fighting. Very different from who he is in other places. And he also doesn't care in the Iliad about other people. He literally stops fighting because honor was at stake. He didn't care about his own side. Exactly. Exactly. No. He said, let them burn. Come and burn the boats. I don't care. You've dishonored me. And in some ways, he's been dishonored because Agamemnon has treated him like a berserker. A man without honor. 
who doesn't deserve what he's won. A man who can just be shoved in the front lines as a berserker. It's kind of emblematic of the berserker's psychological detachment from society's rules, which we'll get into when we talk about PTSD. Yeah, but I think I think it's super fascinating that actually he's angry that Agamemnon is treating him like a like a berserker, like a, just a hired kind of dude. Like he like he doesn't matter. And he's kind of scared of him and he can go and fight on the front lines. But also who gives a shit about you? We're a little afraid of you. Yeah. Who gives a shit about your honor and you as a person? You have no honor. You're because you're a berserker. And to Achilles, he's a prince and a leader. He feels really like, well, fuck you. I mean, we talked about him from a gender perspective, but I also think like this is another thing that's there, which is the dehumanization of Achilles because he's being treated as a berserker, as someone who is just a tool to someone else's means and not an actual human. He's just an animal. It's wild. I I love going deeper into the Iliad. It always makes me happy. But an even closer fit might be our pal Heracles. Think about it. Heracles goes into battle naked except for his trusty Nemean lion skin, which is impervious to fire and swords. His berserk state is triggered by a curse from a goddess and is seen as a kind of altered mind state. It's a form of madness, right? He kills his friends and family in battle rages and is kind of ostracized from polite society, even as those around him depend on his strength. And he's ostracized because people don't know how he's going to behave. He is unreliable in his own life and in his own behavior. I mean, again, we talked about Hercules and Amphale, and I posited the only time he's A reliable dude in his own life is when he's under the control of this woman. And he gets into so much trouble when he's on his own because he literally like kind of wanders around and just like messes things up. (laughs) Yeah, like he can't be on his own. He needs to be completely dominated and controlled to be stable. Yeah, he's like the berserkers who um, I'm going to challenge you to a duel and take all your shit. Like that is Heracles a lot of the time. That's how he operates. Yes, exactly. Like when you put that berserker lens on, you can't stop seeing berserkers, right? No, you can't. The ancient Italians are another place where we can spot berserkers. So the ancient Romans aren't known for a berserk tradition themselves. There might be some accounts somewhere in some source I haven't noticed. I'm sure there must be. But in general, they were kind of the opposite of that. That's how they wanted to portray themselves, at least. Exactly. And Augustus did a lot of work to make sure that is how they were portrayed. Yeah, but ancient Italic tribes such as the Etruscans were sometimes known for their berserkers, according to some ancient sources. And there's one example in Virgil's Aeneid describing an Etruscan warrior named Herminius, quote, great-souled, great-bodied, greatly-armed warrior, flowing blonde hair on his helmetless head, bare-shouldered, unafraid of wounds, huge as he was, fighting uncovered. Hot. Fabio up in here with the flowing blonde hair. Doesn't wear a helmet because it would mess up his hair. Yeah, but that hair is a flex, right? We've talked about hair being a flex when you're a warrior. Mm-hmm, yeah, because somebody could grab it and mess with it. But if you have long hair and you're not concerned about that, then that's a flex. So there's this thing called the choreos, which is a little bit of a rabbit hole that I want to go down. And I've seen some people call this a bit pseudo-historical. I'm not convinced it's entirely pseudo-historical. I would say it's very tenuous and definitely not universally agreed upon. But humor me for a minute here, okay? It's my podcast. Our podcast, and I will humor you. Thank you, John. Just humor me for a second. Cullen, please humor me while I talk about the choreos. I will. 
Thanks, Kukulin. Thank you for emerging from your battle-mad frenzy for a moment to affirm my desire to talk about the choreos. So, some scholars connect the berserker phenomenon all the way back to something called the choreos. And this is not a real word. It's an ancient Indo-European reconstruction of a word that has been linguistically reconstructed. So the ancient Indo-Europeans is a giant rabbit hole that really deserves its own episode. To give you a very thumbnail summary, these are a theoretical people who once spoke the Proto-Indo-European language, which is the root language of all Indo-European languages spoken today. It's kind of like how Latin is the root of all the Romance languages, but Latin is much newer. So Romance languages are also Indo-European as are Baltic languages, um, meaning Latvian and Lithuanian, and also ancient and modern Greek, Germanic languages, including English, Celtic languages, including Breton, Scots, Irish Gaelic, and more, Slavic languages, uh, including Polish and Serbian, and Indo-Iranian languages, such as Farsi, Hindi, and Sanskrit. Dead languages, such as Gaulish, Hittite, Thracian, and Luwian, are also believed to be Indo-European. This is a huge language family that today includes approximately 445 living languages spoken by 42% of the world's population. Researchers have found connections among words in all of these languages that have helped them reconstruct which words are the oldest and what original words in ancient Indo-European the very first language that all these others descend from, might have sounded like. They've also analyzed cultures, histories, and mythology across Indo-European traditions to find commonalities. They found that some broad things most Indo-European cultures had in common include worship of a sky god, patrilineal kinship systems, oral heroic poetry traditions, use of the wheel, agriculture and domestication of cattle and horses. This has led researchers to believe that these cultural hallmarks might go all the way back to the original Indo-European culture, which is believed to have lived somewhere in Eurasia, possibly around the Black Sea, the Eurasian Steppe, or Eastern Europe, dating from around 6400 to 3500 BC. So that's a big range. So, choreos is one of those reconstructed Indo-European words that goes back to that time. It means roughly army, people under arms, or detachment or war party. According to the research, it's theoretically a kind of brotherhood of unmarried young male warriors who were placed apart from society, kind of guarding the boundaries. Joining the Choreos was, again, this is very theoretical, seen as a rite of passage for men. These warbands were not just friendly patrols. These adolescent boys were essentially kicked out of their family homes. They raided neighboring communities to survive, lived in the woods separate from society, hunted for their food, so they were not fed by their own families and communities, indicating they were marginalized and ostracized. And there was a kind of mystical connection with wolves and dogs as representatives of lawlessness and pure animal rage. This reminds me a lot of the young Spartan boys. Right? Same. Me too. These young men operated in a liminal state, between childhood and adulthood, between society and wildness, between human and animal, and between invulnerability and death. Yeah, very Spartan boys. Right, and that's an Indo-European culture, so it doesn't surprise me that they've got some remnant of this. It really doesn't. It, it feels like an ancient thing, right? An ancient way to move forward uh, from one state to another. Mm-hmm. And again, I can't state often enough how heavily theoretical this is. There are some people who think this is pseudo-historical, 
And I'm, again, not sure how broadly accepted it is. It has this weight of truth to it, though, right? And a lot of this Indo-European stuff does, which is interesting and a little eerie. Some of it may be informed fan fiction, and I suspect some gaps have been heavily filled in by people's imaginations. Absolutely. Yeah. But some scholars have traced evidence of traditions like this throughout many Indo-European cultures, enough to suggest that something like this could go all the way back. And it would explain berserker-like traits showing up in so many diverse cultures so long before the Vikings over such a wide geographic area and from so long ago. Is it possible that the Viking berserker was a kind of vestigial limb, the last remnant of a warrior tradition that once stretched back, let's say, 8,500 years? It's incredible. Am I crazy or is this real? I don't know. I want it to be real. Some researchers say yes. Others say that this is a reach. Personally, I have read a lot of research papers and sometimes I get the feeling that the idea of berserking and berserkers is a bit loosely defined. You come across a lot of examples that seem to really fit, but you also encounter some papers where it seems like any long-haired, naked-fighting warrior with a giant boner could be classed as a berserker. Is that really enough to qualify? So I want to define some shit here. I want to lay down some boundaries. Some may disagree with this, but here is a hill that I am prepared to die on. I propose some tighter dividing lines around the term berserker. I propose that in addition to the naked fighting, the connection to the god, the liminal state, the showing up on the front lines severely under-equipped and sporting a raging boner, which, let's be real, anybody could do. All it takes is being hung over one time. (laughs) (laughs) There were two defining qualities that get you classed as a real shit, card-carrying, genuine article berserker. Those two things are transformation and an altered mental state. Okay. I'm here for this. That altered mental state may be one of the most important differentiators between a true berserker and a normal warrior. Sometimes it's described as a battle rage. The Romans called it Furor Teutonicus. In Cuchulain's mythology, it's the warp spasm. Warp spasm. Right, at least in that one translation that we use a lot. Yeah, exactly. In berserker lore, it's called the berserker gang. What was the Berserker Gang like? (laughs) And we're talking specifically in Viking tradition now, although this shares some similarities with other Berserker-like behavior in different cultures. Usually, this word was used to refer to the intense, overwhelming rage that overcame the Berserkers in battle, the Battle Fury. This mental state was said to begin with a violent shivering, a chattering of the teeth and a chill overtaking the body. The face would swell up and change color, and then the berserker would be filled with a killing rage. He would howl with fury, foam at the mouth, bite his shield, and slaughter indiscriminately, friend and foe. While under the influence of the berserker gang, these warriors were said not to feel pain and to be impervious to normal weapons. People knew to stay away from berserkers both on the battlefield and off when the berserker gang overcame them. Interestingly, there was a come down. After the berserker gang subsided, the men would crash. They'd become weak as babies and experience a feebleness and, quote, dullness of the mind that could last for several days. So what could cause an altered state like this? 
Drugs. We'll get to the drugs. I'm building to the drugs, Jen. <laughs> I know you are. It just sounds like they had a trip and now they're back and it wasn't a good trip. Some have suggested that it wasn't the drugs so much as the religious frenzy. Like religious frenzy alone could do this is the suggestion. Oh, totally. Absolutely. I'm surprised to see that affirming of the religious frenzy, but tell me more. Religious frenzy can absolutely do that. I mean, there are so many different religions and cults where this is a key component of what happens. And also, like, I think sometimes dosing in religions happens. But that, yeah, I'm not going to fight on any soapbox about it. But I do think it's happened. We definitely know it's happened in cults. I can't say what has happened throughout all of the, the generations of different religions. Also, remember when we talked about the goat song, when we talked about worship of Dionysus, there is there is a religious frenzy, but there's also something that happens when people are all experiencing a sort of religious moment together where their bodies and hearts and even their breathing will sink together. Don't underestimate that because that is also at play here. You don't necessarily need drugs. Maybe you do, but maybe you. I'm willing to believe that you don't. I'm coming at it from the very like having grown up religious, like I have experienced that feeling that altered state. So I know that you can achieve it without drugs because I did not take drugs as a child and everything else. But I'm also willing to believe that there are some people who would use drugs to enhance that and to exert control. So that's all I'm saying about that. But I do think that there is a natural phenomenon that happens when you have that belief and that worship and devotion to a, a higher power that does sync things together. Like just like we talked about with the goat song and the pouring out of tragedies and the cult of Dionysus and stuff like that. So make of that what you will. Some have suggested that this had to do with the berserker's connection to Odin. Odin himself was a shape-shifting god, and he was the berserker's patron god. In fact, some researchers believe that the berserkers were members of their own secret Odin-centered cult, like the cult of Dionysus, but about Odin. We don't know what the rituals would have been, and there is very little explanation in the ancient sources of how berserkers worshipped Odin and how they summoned the berserker gang. But it's possible that some kind of religious ecstasy gave rise to an altered mental state. Totally makes sense to me. This could have involved ritual dance, and there is some mention of this. For instance, the Emperor Constantine VII, a Byzantine emperor who lived from 905 to 959 AD, described a dance performed by his Varangian guard. So the Varangians were kind of like the Batavi, although they weren't from Belgium. They were Vikings for the most part, hailing from what's now today Russia and the Ukraine, mostly. Like the Batavi, they formed an elite bodyguard for the emperor with a certain amount of barbarian cachet, if you will. Constantine describes them performing what he called a gothic dance to work themselves up for battle wearing masks and animal skins, which may have some connection to berserker rituals, although it's very briefly described, so it's hard to tell. But there's, there's another theory that adds a layer onto this religious frenzy theory, and that is the PTSD theory. So some have suggested the berserker gang was nothing more than a form of self-induced group hysteria or religious ecstasy brought about through ritual. But some theorists see something deeper in the symptoms of berserker gang, PTSD. In fact, we've seen it suggested that the shield biting, so iconic in berserker tales, was a way berserkers dealt with severe anxiety before battle, packaged as an overwhelming aggression. That also makes sense to me. Jonathan Shea, who is an, uh, an MD and a PhD, talks about this in his seminal work, Achilles in Vietnam, Combat Trauma and the Undoing of Character. 
Shay counseled Vietnam veterans with severe PTSD for decades, and in his book, he compares the experience of Vietnam vets with accounts of war in the Iliad and other ancient texts. He talks a lot about the berserk state. This account is going to sound very focused on U.S. Vietnam veterans, which was the group of people who the author's experience was with. But we want to acknowledge here that the horrors of Vietnam were obviously certainly not limited to U.S. and other allied veterans. The Vietnamese people suffered horrendous war crimes at the hands of U.S. and other allied armies, and I think it's not a question that many struggled with their own PTSD and still do today. We are going to talk about PTSD, specifically combat PTSD, a lot coming up in some detail, and that might be disturbing to some people, so just FYI, that is coming up. Another disclaimer I want to put here is that we are not psychiatrists or experts ourselves. Hopefully we are talking about this in an accurate manner. I apologize if I get anything wrong here. I'm aware that it's a very serious and possibly sensitive topic. So according to Jonathan Shea, Prolonged exposure to war and violence destroys what he calls the trustworthy social order of the mind. It's an undoing that happens in stages as the soldier or warrior experiences the moral outrage of war. And I'm not saying this can't happen to people who were not involved in war and had other traumatic things happen to them. It absolutely can, but he's talking about it specifically in the context of the Vietnam War. Anyway, it's an undoing that happens in stages as the soldier or warrior experiences the moral outrages of war and as the rules and strictures of normal society break down. It's a complex process, and I'm sure I'm not summarizing it as well as I could here, but we can see this happen to a lot of warriors in ancient epics as if they were documenting a deconstruction of the warrior's mind and the separation of the warrior from the civilian society and its rules of conduct and morals. This process culminates in the berserk state. You can see this happen to Achilles after Patroclus dies, and to Cucullin after the death of the boy troop. Cucullin goes further into the warp spasm than he ever had before, and goes into a complete battle frenzy, killing friend and foe. Achilles does something similar. Based on interviews with real Vietnam veterans who experienced PTSD, veterans who experienced what they might have described as a berserk state, Shea describes the berserker's rage as an indignant rage. Quote, the kind of rage arising from social betrayal that impairs a person's dignity through violation of what's right. The rage that ruptures social attachments. His work even explains the berserker's detachment from wider society, apart from a small, perhaps 12-person, band of fellow berserkers. Quote, The social horizon of the unscarred soldier encompasses not only his family and other civilian ties, but also those military formations to which his unit belongs. Prolonged exposure to danger and the profound strain of battle compel this contraction of loyalty to some degree in every war. Soldiers sometimes lose responsiveness to the claims of any bonds, ideals, or loyalties outside a tiny circle of immediate comrades. An us-versus-them mentality severs all other attachments and commitments. The Vietnam War isn't my area of historical expertise, which is why I'm not getting too detailed here. But I think a lot of this mental break that the soldiers talked about experiencing in this book, you know, some of it at least, was due to the horrors that soldiers were told to inflict on the Vietnamese people, as well as a sense of betrayal from leaders at the top who treated their lives as disposable. And I'm certainly not saying that soldiers weren't culpable for war crimes if they say they were just following orders. I do not think that at all. Just that it seems to me that being in an extremely violent environment 
where a person is not only experiencing it themselves, but also inflicting it on others, perhaps going against their pre-existing sense of right and wrong, can rupture their sense of the moral fabric of normal peacetime society and make them lose trust in societal connections. So this is a description of the experience of extremely traumatized Vietnam vets, but it also kind of explains how berserkers become untrustworthy to friend as well as foe why they might be mistrusted by their wider community. They are loyal to no one outside of a very small group of fellow comrades because of their shared trauma. That's the theory, at least. The veteran Shea interviews discuss their mental state as animalistic and transformed. They felt possessed. From one interview, quote, this is from a, a person who was a soldier in Vietnam, war changes you, changes you, strips you, strips you of all your beliefs, your religion, takes your dignity away, you become an animal. I carried this home with me. I lost all my friends, beat up my sister, went after my father. I mean, I just went after anybody and everything. I'd be sitting there calm as could be, and this monster would come out of me with a fury that most people didn't want to be around. This is all, it's terrible, but it also sounds very familiar, right? Absolutely. The PTSD theory is that berserkers were so scarred by their experiences that they could no longer function in non-combat situations and could barely follow the rules in combat. That meant they were ostracized and alienated on the battlefield and off. Quote, Combat trauma destroys the capacity for social trust, says Shea, accounting for the paranoid state of being that blights the lives of the most severely traumatized combat veterans. As the warriors' ideals, ambitions, prior identity, and connections to society are destroyed, he loses contact with reality. He starts to believe that he's possessed by an animal, a demon, or even a god. Of course, the process of descending into the PTSD-induced berserker state doesn't occur all at once. It's gradual, but the straw that breaks the camel's back is often grief. You can see this in the epics with Achilles and with Cucullin. Shea has also found this to be true with Vietnam vets, that grief was a major trigger, especially grief after a prolonged period of exposure to violence. Another trigger could be survival guilt. In situations where one man survives when the rest of his trusted group dies, Shea found that those guys sometimes developed a mystical feeling that they couldn't be killed, as if normal weapons couldn't harm them. The vets he interviewed described heightened senses, superhuman strength, reduced sensitivity to pain and fatigue, all due to intense adrenaline and hormonal changes to the body due to constant exposure to fear and terror. That sounds just like the berserkers in the old sagas. And according to this theory, berserkers were just guys with extreme war and lifetime PTSD. But wait a minute. Wait just a minute. A lot of this does sound like the berserker state. But here's the thing. Shay describes entering it as a gradual process of mental breakdown that can take months or years and that can last for years or maybe even decades. The berserker state is something you lived with long term. It's part of extreme PTSD. But in the ancient sagas, that's not how the berserker state is described. It's described as something that comes on suddenly, that can be called at will, and that leaves when the battle is over. And there's that come down, right? So, well, yeah, berserkers might indeed have had PTSD long-term anyway, and that probably was extremely common in warrior cultures, including people who were not berserkers. Maybe the actual berserker state, the berserker gang, needed a little extra push, a little extra help. 
pharmaceutical help. Are you going to cult of Mithras me and make me drink pee again? I think there might be some pee drinking coming up, Jen. <laughs> I mean, we might be building to the pee drinking here, as we do. <laughs> as, as we always do. All of the ancient world building to the pee drinking. So, were the berserkers taking drugs? Maybe as part of their religious rituals. Some researchers believe that this was very likely. And there are two candidates for the drug in question that we've seen repeated often. Fly agaric and black henbane. And we want to state up front that there's no reference in the ancient sources about Vikings using drugs to produce the berserker state. And it's quite possible that this was because the berserkers were in a mystery cult, <clears throat> cult of Mithras. The first rule of mystery cults, as, as we all know, is that you don't share the mysteries with outsiders. You don't talk about the mystery cult. So our shocking lack of knowledge here is not surprising. Now, fly agaric is a mushroom that grows throughout the northern hemisphere with its bright red, white-spotted cap. It's perhaps the most widely recognizable mushroom in popular culture. Fly agaric was the power-up mushroom in Super Mario Brothers. The Smurfs cartoon depicted the Smurfs living in houses drawn to look like fly agaric. I mean, that mushroom cracks me up because, like, don't you take those mushrooms in Super Mario Brothers and level up? Just think, the, the mysteries of the Odin cult were embedded in Super Mario 3. Maybe the Super Mario Brothers are telling us a deep, dark, ancient secret. Fly agaric has psychoactive properties. Some of the effects include visual and audio hallucinations, lucid dreaming, dissociation, synesthesia, which is where two different sensory or cognitive pathways are simulated together. Yeah, it's like you can smell colors. Like It's like you think clarinet music sounds green or something. Yes, exactly. And there's also Alice in Wonderland syndrome, which is where objects are perceived as smaller or larger than they actually are. Sexy. Sounds disorienting to me, but okay. <laughs> it can also function as a depressant and a sedative. Fly agaric is native to Northern Europe. The Sami, an indigenous people native to Norway, Finland, Sweden, and some parts of Russia, use it in shamanic rituals. In 1784, the Swedish professor Samuel Odman proposed that fly agaric was used to basically bring on the berserker state. For a while after, this seems to have been the prevailing theory. Not unconnected is that the colloquial name of fly agaric in Icelandic translates to berserker mushroom. I feel like they were onto something, Jenny. Today, however, nope, researchers considered this unlikely, pointing out that Odman's speculations are based on the rituals of Siberian shamans, not Vikings. And fly agaric wasn't even brought to Iceland until the 1900s. So who knows when that name originated, but probably long after Vikings were nothing but legend. Experts point out that although fly agaric can have varied effects depending on the person, the dosage and how it's prepared, it generally doesn't produce the invulnerable battle rage described in the Berserker Gang. In fact, it's a sedative, probably not the most useful state in battle, although very useful if you want a nap. Very rarely are there any documented cases of the mushroom causing increased aggression, no matter how it's prepared. And the side effects include nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, dizziness, and tremors. And they would probably make you even less fit for battle. Counterpoint, though. Please counterpoint me. It can also cause increased salivation, foaming at the mouth, which was a noted berserker symptom, and reddening of the face, another documented effect of the berserker gang. And, so here's a fun little rabbit hole I went down when researching this. Jen, I'm sure you're anticipating this eagerly. 
I have already said it once this episode. Miss Rasmi, bitch. Here we go. So I saw a claim, a very dubious claim, made in an obscure YouTube documentary that I watched once and then couldn't find again. And then I went down a badly sourced Reddit thread rabbit hole about same, so take this with a grain of salt. But the claim is this, that the berserkers avoided the worst side effects of fly agaric by having one of them eat the mushrooms and then everyone else drinking his pee. We came across this in our, our episode on Mithras, too. Which is why I had to bring it up, even though this is not well-sourced. I just had to bring it up. Apparently, this may have been a real thing in general in the ancient world. People drinking the pee of people who took various drugs in order to reduce the side effects while still getting the hallucinogenic properties. Your kidneys, it turns out, potentially will filter out the worst toxins of the drug, and the hallucinogenic properties will be retained in the pee, Theoretically, I would not suggest trying this at home. Yeah, we're just putting it out there. It can't be properly sourced. We've both seen tantalizing hints that this is a thing people really did in ancient times to manage drug side effects and mystery cults. Although, again, I haven't found enough info on this to say for sure. Anyway, I could find very little documentation on this outside of a few random Reddit threads where someone claimed that there's another obscure gentleman scholar source that says the berserkers made a virgin eat the mushrooms and then drank her or his pee. And then everyone else in that thread was calling it bullshit. (laughs) This extremely dubious claim is backed up by a Blogspot blog where someone claimed to have gotten high with the Sami by feeding fly agaric to reindeer and then drinking the reindeer pee. So maybe the berserkers were all drinking each other's pee or a virgin's pee or reindeer pee. Make of all this what you will, people. There is another drug that researchers consider is the more likely culprit for the berserker gang state, and that is black henbane. Black henbane, also known as stinking nightshade, oh, it's going to smell terrible, is a member of the nightshade family. It's a poisonous hallucinogenic plant that can be found all across Europe, from the Mediterranean to Scandinavia, as well as the Middle East and Asia. Henbane was used for medicinal and ritual purposes in the ancient world. It can be smoked, eaten, or drunk with wine, or distilled into a cream or oil and rubbed on the skin. Effects vary based on the method of ingestion, dosage, and other factors. But some effects include hallucinations, restlessness, confusion, flushed skin, and delirium. Users report a sense of flying, a sense of being able to see very far, and disturbances in memory, among other things. It was a main ingredient in that elusive and very dangerous flying ointment. Do not try this at home, kids. Of course, henbane is extremely toxic. The wrong dose can absolutely kill you, and it is not a good way to die. Some of the more extreme side effects include convulsions and vomiting, elevated body temperature, a dangerously elevated heart rate, seizures, coma, respiratory paralysis, and death. 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 So it would have to be prepared extremely carefully by somebody who knows what they're doing. The ethnobotanist Karsten Fatur, apologies if I mispronounced your name, of the University of New Brunswick, has done the definitive study on henbane and its potential as the berserker gang drug. In her article, Sagas of the Solanaceae, Speculative Ethnobotanical Perspectives on the Norse Berserkers, she compared the effects of henbane with that of fly agaric. Quote, As previously discussed, both substances may cause increases in strength, altered level of consciousness, wild delirious behavior, jerking and twitching, and redness of the face, all of which have been associated with berserkers. 
What makes henbane a more compelling theoretical cause of the berserker state, however, is its additional symptoms that are not commonly seen in intoxication involving fly agaric. In addition to previous symptoms, henbane's alkaloids also have pain-killing effects unseen in the compounds within fly agaric, which may account for some of the reports of the supposed invulnerability of the Norse berserkers. Even more compelling is the duration of effects, though the berserker state has been reported to involve several days of side effects after the high has subsided. This is not a common feature in intoxications with Amanita muscaria, which I think is fly agaric. She also points out that henbane can make you foam at the mouth. It can drop your blood pressure, perhaps a reason berserkers were said not to bleed as much as expected when wounded, and were perhaps invulnerable to weapons. It can also cause face blindness, which is perhaps why berserkers had a tendency to attack friend as well as foe. Interestingly, with berserkers, here is a rare place where the archaeology backs up the theory. A fascinating grave was discovered in an ancient graveyard near a ring fortress in Denmark, dating from 980 AD. It was the grave of a woman believed to be a Volga or Viking seeress. She was clearly high status, buried in blue and red garments, stitched with golden thread. She was buried on a horse-drawn carriage, as the greatest kings and heroes were. She wore silver toe rings and had two bronze bowls that may have come from Central Asia, as well as potentially ritualistic objects, such as owl pellets and bones from birds and small mammals. She was also buried with a strange metal wand with bronze fittings, perhaps a staff or magical wand. But one of the most interesting finds in her grave was a collection of henbane seeds kept in a small purse. Archaeologists will probably tell you that this doesn't definitively connect henbane to berserkers. We don't know for sure that this was a seeress, although it seems likely. We don't know for sure that she led berserker rituals and gave henbane to berserkers in preparation for battle, although it is possible, and I've done a lot of fanfictioning in my head about it. But it does suggest that henbane seeds may have been used for ritual purposes among the Vikings. That's basically what it suggests. One thing some point out is that the henbane seeds, which have also been found in other graves, are never found in men's graves, only women's graves. This means perhaps the Volgas played a key role in leading berserker rituals, although this is not mentioned in the ancient sources. Again, mystery cults are mysterious. Yeah, they just don't talk about what they get up to, unless it's drinking pee. Unless it's drinking pee, in which case, well, I mean, there's nothing in the ancient sources that says the Vikings drank pee. It's mostly gentleman scholars speculating. Exactly. So now we're going to move into how the berserkers met their end. Shocker, your Christian monk is showing. So, Christianity came to the Viking world roughly around the 900s AD, and Christianity did not mesh well with berserkers. In 1015, the governor of Norway, Eric Hackinson, outlawed dueling and exiled berserkers. It was banned in the Grey Goose Laws in Iceland around the same time, and all berserkers were outlawed. They were kind of outlaws anyway, it's just that dueling was now illegal, and that's how they made their... Their money if they weren't warring, yeah, so now they're like, great. So most of the sources that we've seen on this say that by the 1100s AD, organized berserker warbands in Scandinavia were a thing of the past. Many of the Icelandic sagas that speak of berserkers were written down around the 1200s at the earliest, and some were written as late as the 1400s. Snorri, who gives us a lot of the info we have, was born in 1179, 
164 years after berserkers and dueling were outlawed. Even the Lewis chessmen, which give us such an iconic image of a berserker biting his shield, date from around the late 1100s. So the most detailed accounts we have of berserkers date from maybe a century or two after berserkers actually stalked the battlefield, if not more. It's perhaps not a coincidence that that Lewis chessman biting his shield doesn't actually look like a berserker. He's fully armored and helmeted and he's wearing chainmail and he has a giant shield. Only the biting is reminiscent of berserkers. Maybe it's the representation of a legend that the maker never saw in real life. The historical record for berserkers suddenly gets a lot thinner when you look at the accounts we have that are actually from the time berserkers existed. There's that one poem, The Words of the Raven, from 872 AD, and there are those plates, the Torslanda plates, from the 500s to 700s AD. And of course, there are the accounts from the ancient Romans, statues and myths from Celtic people, and reports from various places of berserker-like behavior among cultures throughout the Indo-European world. Has it all been smoke and mirrors? Did the legendary Viking berserker never exist at all? I don't know, Jen. What do you think? I don't know. I think they did. I mean, personally, I think it's unlikely that berserkers never existed. Although there's little, if any, evidence in the ground of anyone being a berserker, and textual evidence is a little more misleading than you'd think. It's a little more tenuous than you'd think. The reports are just too widespread for berserkers to be entirely legendary. I guess. Maybe. Were they really just as they're described in mythology and history? We'll never know that for sure. It's a mystery. So that's it for this week. <laughs> yeah, that's it for this week, for this spooky season episode. Berserkers, Werewolves of the Ancient Battlefields, Fact or Fiction? Come find us on social media at Ancient Hist Fan on Twitter, which I am not calling X, I refuse. We're also at Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Threads. And check out our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl. It really is what keeps the lights on. And we appreciate the support of all of our patrons so much. We have some patrons to thank, don't we, Jen? We do. Apologies in advance if we mispronounce your name. We hope we don't. Cassandra F. Lolly Willows. Molly McConaughey. Jen Robbins. Ninon Zander. Neil and Trish Wallace. The Guinea Cat. <laughs> Shannon Carone, Justin Fernandez, and Zoe Haining. Thank you so much for your support. We could not do this podcast without you. Thank you all so much, and we will see you next week. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.